You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. When you can see someone that has the same jersey that you have on, you know, you, you root for that team. From the early days of silent films to present day, from Chaplin to X-Men, disability portrayals are ever-changing. There's virtually no people with disabilities present, you know, in the, the kind of fabric of the entertainment world. And that wallpaper is really our collective social wallpaper, right? It's how we see ourselves. If society got its ideas about people with disabilities from TV, they would think that basically we're either pathetic or super people. There's no denying that people aren't influenced by what they see in, in media. Images are so impactful that we can, we can overcome social barriers through media. I've worked so hard to do all these mainstream projects so that I wouldn't be pigeonholed. I said, here I am, getting in this accident, now I'm black all over again. Here we go, gotta start from scratch, because everybody gonna look down on us and here I go grinding again. To be able to have those instances where you have somebody on screen who is, quote, disabled, but who is in charge of their life or discovering their life or in control or, you know, actually learns how to deal with life is an image that I hope we have more of now than we ever had before. Did you hear what I said, Forrest? You're the same as everybody else. You are no different. I think God made me the way I am for a reason. Different, not less. I may speak differently, but it doesn't mean I'm different than you. I want to show you what I could do. Roll camera, please. I think we want to get to this point in the world where it's what you do that counts. It's what you can accomplish that counts. And we're not so concerned with how you look or how you get there. Hollywood is always at the forefront, in my mind, of causes from acknowledging race relations and anti-Semitism and, and all of those kinds of things to acknowledging the same kind of bigotry that goes along with people with disabilities. It's not just for me. It's not just for people in wheelchairs. It's for people that's deaf. It's for people that's amputees. It's, it's everybody. Get on board. This star-studded documentary will showcase how media can transform our society, how filmmaking has changed over the decades, and most importantly, how an enlightened understanding of disability can have a positive impact on the world around us. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Steve Byrne. Hello, everybody. Thanks, Mike, for having me on today. Also with us this week is Mr. Sean Gray. Hi, how's it going? On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are discussing the documentary film Cinemability, directed by Jenny Golden, co-written by Samuel Reed. The film looks at a long history of portraying disabilities on screen. Rather than asking when was the first time you guys both saw this film, because I know you both saw it rather recently, I want to ask you, when was the first time you remember seeing someone with disabilities on screen, and what did you think at the time? Steve, I'm going to start with you. You know, I was thinking about this one, and I'm not sure I can 100% place which one, but I would say it was probably The Miracle Worker, the Helen Keller story. I remember that movie having a, you know, a really pretty profound and kind of like, uh, scary isn't the right word. It, it really impacted me as a little kid. My mom had me watch it. Though the movie also goes into a couple that I guess, at least in my mind, when I was young watching them, I didn't view them that way. 
Crackle, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and um, The Wizard of Oz. Um, the film brings them up talking about little people. I don't think I viewed those people as having disabilities. I viewed them as fantastical characters, um, but it would be one of those three. That's funny. When you brought up uh, Charlie and the Chalk Factory, I went to the old people in bed and like that they were immobilized. I was just like, oh, yeah, I guess that was a disability. <laughs> Didn't even think about the Oompa Loompas whatsoever. Okay, same question to you, Sean. Yeah, it's funny for me. So I have cerebral palsy and I use a walker to walk. Well, you know, I was growing up, you know, I remember seeing on certain shows uh, that I watch as a kid, like, I think like Kids Incorporated or something like there was an episode with somebody in a wheelchair or something like that. But I think the actual first movie that I remember, and this is kind of a random reference, uh, was the movie Mac and Me, which was basically that, you know, hour and a half long advertisement for McDonald's. Um, that came out, I think it was like 90 or 91. I, one of the lead characters, I guess he is a lead character, uh, was in a wheelchair. And I use a walker to walk, but at the time I was going to an elementary school uh, up until I was in third grade, and it was kind of built for children with disabilities. So I was around uh, children in wheelchairs, and, and it didn't just run the gamut of cerebral palsy. It, you know, it was all kinds of disabilities in the spectrum, but it was the first time that I really remember not only seeing somebody that kind of, oh, I know somebody that's in a wheelchair, but also can't walk, which I can't without a mobility device. Uh, so that was sort of, again, it was sort of the first time that I had really seen a lead character. That way, it was also the first time that I, I, I kind of remember it not just being like, you know, if, if if this was a TV show, for example, it was like the 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 person in the wheelchair was there for like one episode, and they were sort of used as like a prop to be like or to drive a storyline. You know, so but this was the first time I just remember somebody being in a wheelchair, somebody having more than twenty minutes on screen. Uh, that was the first time I really remember somebody with a disability on screen, sort of reflecting to a certain extent what. I kind of go through in daily life. I can't remember when my first exposure was. I know I saw the miracle worker in elementary school as well. For whatever reason, we would watch three to one contact in school. And I remember there was a segment in there where they went to, I think they went to a school for the deaf. And so that was kind of my first exposure to deaf people was through that. And I know there's a, a clip that I talk about with uh, Jenny Gold later in the interview uh, from Mork and Mindy, where uh, there was a blind character on Mork and Mindy. I seem to remember that. And then um, I remember Cousin Jerry from Facts of Life. So it was all through television. It wasn't necessarily through movies. I don't really remember. I mean, The Miracle Worker obviously was a movie, but I don't I, I have more of a strong tie to television examples than I did to movie examples. And then as I grew older, it seemed like there were always like the, uh, at least the time when I was growing up there, the TV movies were still pretty big. And there was the whole idea of the quote unquote disease of the week. Now disease of the week does not translate necessarily into disability of the week, though some of those were kind of sprinkled in, but really for me, disabilities being portrayed on screen started. To, I really started to notice them when things like uh, my left foot and it became kind of a cliche for a lot of years that if, 
if you wanted that Oscar nod, you would have to portray someone with some sort of a disability. So Dustin Hoffman as Rain Man. Obviously, I said Daniel Day-Lewis as Christy Brown. So just it seemed like such a trope. And then obviously they make fun of it in something like Tropic Thunder with uh, Simple Jack and um, Ben Stiller in that movie. Check it out. Dustin Hoffman, Rain Man, look retarded, act retarded, not retarded. Cat two picks, cheetah cards, autistic, show, not retarded. They got Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump. Slow, yes, retarded, maybe, braces on his legs, but he chomped the pants off next to him and he won a ping pong competition. That ain't retarded. And he was a goddamn war hero. Right. You know any retarded war heroes? You went full retard, man. Never go full retard. You don't buy that? Ask Sean Penn, 2001, I am saying. Remember? Went full retard. Went home empty-handed. I didn't have a, a, a lot of exposure in real life to people with disabilities, but I, I seem to get most of my information through the movies. And so this documentary, I heard about this documentary a couple of years ago, uh, interviewed Danny Woodbird a few years ago for the episode that we did on Death to Smoochie and saw this in his filmography and we talked about it a little bit. I've been interested in this movie for a couple of years. I really wanted to see it. And then finally now it's kind of getting out there onto the, uh, the circuit as it were, and more people are being able to see it. So that's what finally brought us together to discuss this. So I'm really glad that now more people will have a chance to see this. So I'm curious, what did you guys actually think of the movie? It's funny to me because it's one of those things that it's, uh, I'm glad it exists and I'm glad it's, it's there for people to sort of watch and sort of kind of understand the, the issue of representation of disability uh, within cinema. But it's something that I've, you know, for better or worse have, have always known. And, you know, the history of, of representation of disability in cinema, that aspect of it is great. There's a lot of things that I just did, either didn't know or, or sort of was like, oh, that, that makes sense. Uh, but the underlining sort of idea that uh, the representation is is still lacking or minimal at best or sort of, um, how would I put it, not, you know, the idea that uh, some people who have disabilities that are in cinema or are in TV, uh, their achievements are sort of like the pat on the head kind of achievement. Uh, that's something that I still deal with in, in everyday life in my professional career and in the things that I do. And I don't mean this to sound like, Oh, like, woe is me, but this is a, this is a very real thing. And, and the, the sort of takeaway for me is something that I've always known now for the able bodied person or the person that isn't within the disability community. Uh, this could be enlightening for them. And, and I'm for that reason, I'm glad that it exists um, I'm not going to downgrade or, 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 um, you know, sort of make the, the film seem less than what it really is. And then, uh, I, th I think it's good for what it does, but for somebody with a disability, this is something that I've, I've known or the, the takeaway is something that I've, I've dealt with. But again, the sort of historical nature of the, dis or of the, uh, of the film is, is, is really interesting. And one of the things that I thought was a, was a really big highlight was the, uh, I believe it was the kind of that first short film, the 32nd. It was, uh, I, I forget, unfortunately what it's called. The fake beggar. 
Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. Just uh, again, the representation of disability and 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 how that was portrayed. And I believe that was what in like eighteen ninety seven or something like that. Yeah, seeing that and understanding that historical piece and kind of how that fits in with um, what happened later with Eddie Murphy and uh, I believe is it Living in America, Trading Places. That was really interesting to sort of see that you know, 60, 70, 80 years later um, was sort of brought back. But again, that's sort of my perspective of the film. I think it was very well done. I think it was the interviews were really interesting to listen to. But again, it's something that I've sort of, for better or worse, I deal with every day. So I found a lot of the pieces of it to be really compelling. I definitely felt like I learned a lot, both in the, you know, especially the early history stuff that, that Sean referenced, things like um, that kind of subset of movies that Lon Chaney made. You know, of course, I was familiar, like, with The Phantom or The Hunchback, but some of the other stuff, like the guy, uh, I can't remember the name of the film, forgive me, uh, the guy who had no arms. And that that kind of historical context was was really cool. The, the stuff about the fake beggar, beggar and tying it back to modern times, I think that's kind of a trope that continues even past trading places. I immediately, when they showed that, I was thinking of that, that character. I think his name was Tucker. And um, there's something about Mary who I guess they're all in some ways trying to trick Mary into being with them. And he uses a disability to try to do that. That's something that continues to what that movie's, you know, what, 15 years old now. So I really appreciated the wide range of perspectives that came across. There's things I think that I just probably as an able-bodied person, I don't necessarily think about. And why would somebody be sensitive about a particular issue? I thought this brought some of that out. Um, An example would be, you know, like that the film brings up the controversy over Million Dollar Baby. When I saw that movie, it never really occurred to me, I don't think, like how offensive that ending might come across to some people, but you see it here. If I had any complaint about the film, it does have a little bit of a rat-a-tat-tat style where it's like you learn something, you get one or two comments on it, and then they're on to the next thing. And it feels like it starts to go a little bit. And I wonder whether in a few instances it might have benefited the film and us if it like spent a little more time on a couple specific episodes and really drew them out so you could see in even greater layers of um you know the complexity that goes into these kind of issues but in general i would recommend this movie to anybody i learned a lot from it that opening montage was almost too much you're talking about the rat-a-tat-tat style of it and it was just like wow this is a whole lot of stuff and it's really quick and we don't necessarily get explanations or longer scenes of those i think even if they just took those opening clips that they use for that montage and if they were to unpack each one of those that would take up the entire length of the film even if they spent 10 seconds on each one of those things and as i'm watching it i'm just like and i i don't know how this is going to sound but there are times where it's just like oh yeah i didn't really think of that as being a disability like when i saw a woman with one eye i was just like okay yeah i guess that that that's partially sightedness okay i i get that and then i'm as i'm watching just the depth of all of the different disabilities i was like wow you could actually take each one of these and almost spin it into its own movie i mean that might 
belabor the point a little much at times, but there are enough things, I think, like hearing the interview with Danny Woodburn and how he's talking about watching Wizard of Oz and not realizing that the little people on screen are like him. You know, they're munchkins. I'm me until he started to get insulted by being called a munchkin. And then him talking about uh, the, the bad guy from the wild, wild west. And it's just like, wow, there's a whole movie of just how little people have been represented on screen. You know, I'm thinking of like even dwarves started small and under the rainbow and just like, Oh, you know, the time band is just so many movies where I'm just like, okay, how have have little people been represented on screen? And then I start thinking, okay, well, how have blind people been represented on screen and deaf? And uh, this not to interrupt, and but I think that's a that's a really good point because the one thing that I think they did right sometimes, uh, this film did right sometimes, and it did didn't do enough of was represent disability as uh, a spectrum. Again, I use a walker to walk. There are certain mobility things that I'm able to do, but there are things that I'm not able to do. I'm not able to walk up steps without a railing and somebody carrying my walker. That is completely different and a different experience from somebody who is visually impaired uh, or somebody who has a wheelchair. Um, and, and I think that there were times where the, this film expressed that and there were others times that it Kind of didn't. Uh, again, I think sometimes disability all just gets lumped into one category. And I think that makes it very easy um, for people to go, well, you know, if you if you are visually impaired somewhat or if you use a walker or a wheelchair, you're in this group. I understand that it's very difficult to within a community of people then to sort of say, well, they have these different experiences and these different experiences. But that's true. And so the the film itself i think in some parts did a very good job of explaining that and other parts didn't and so i i understand you know why it it could be confusing to some people uh some able-bodied people or, or people with disabilities that oh this person missing an eye may have a disability or this person missing a finger may have a disability or this person that, you know, even has an invisible disability, you may not think of that as a disability. But um, and, and yeah, of course, you can't unpack that in this kind of film because it would take, you know, you would then have a film that's three hours long or four hours or multiple films. Um, like you said, you could do a film just based on how people with visual impairments have been treated in film or in media or um, you know, how dwarfism has been treated. Uh, so, of course, that's it's impossible to do. But I think that's something to uh, anybody listening to this podcast should, if, if they don't really understand already, that disability is a spectrum of everything. And, and it can range from, you know, little eyesight to invisible disabilities. And, and again, I think the film got that right on some parts, and I think it ignored it in others. One spot where I thought it did a pretty decent job on it or where it drew it out a little bit was the kind of the controversy that followed um, Children of a Lesser God when Marley Matlin won won the Academy Award. And she talked about how initially a lot of the deaf community really embraced her. And then she started getting feedback, you know, on specific things, especially when she was on the Oscars again the next year. It shows that, like, particularly able-bodied people tend to think that there's, like, a monolithic approach 
among communities, minority communities of any sort and think all those people think the same way about one thing. Definitely, I feel like as I've gotten older and met more people of different types, to assume that there is a monolithic opinion is definitely wrong. You know, my my sister has a hearing impairment. She's not deaf, but she's fairly well connected with the deaf community. And I mentioned that I was going to be doing this. And, you know, she was able to quickly send me all sorts of films where you might want to think about this. You might want to think about that. It just gets back to your point, Mike, originally that I think you could probably do a whole documentary just on the treatment of any of these specific areas. I know my sister felt you could do one just on the hearing impaired world for sure. In the past, we've looked at, and I haven't done this as much as I want to go into it, and we've actually brought it up kind of couched in other episodes. Like uh, we've talked, when we did an episode on Bamboozled, we talked about uh, there was a documentary, actually a couple documentaries, obviously, on how uh, African-Americans have been portrayed in, in film over the years. We did uh, an episode on a documentary called The Slanted Screen, which talked about how Asians have been portrayed in, in film. And then even with that, I think uh, I'm trying to remember that was more Asian males versus Asian females. And then I've seen some that concentrate just on Chinese people versus Japanese people. And just you can splinter down into that small, the into that granularity. And I think that's absolutely fine. And I'm not trying to redirect the movie that Jenny Gold has put together. Uh, I just want to make sure that people know that I have no problem with this showing, as you brought up, Sean, this, this spectrum. And I think it's fantastic that it does show the spectrum. I just want to say that I think that this film hopefully opens up a door for a lot of people to start thinking about other things and maybe for there to be follow-up documentaries, maybe by gold, maybe by other people, where people can concentrate on one area or another. I mean, one thing that didn't come up was, say, speech impediments. And it's just like, okay, how have speech impediments been dealt with over the years? You know, usually they're built in for laughs, you know, uh, Julie Brown in Shakes the Clown or the Eric Idle character in A Fish Called Wanda. And it's just like, and it's one of those kind of strange things where it's a mark of difference. And that is so much of what we see when they talk about uh, in this film, talking about how people with disabilities have been portrayed. And I love the one guy who talks about how there's the Avenger character where people have been wronged or hurt or maimed or whatever, and then they have to get their revenge on the rest of the world. Or there's that noble character. There's a scene from, I think it's a, a Griffith film with, uh, uh, I can't remember if it's Mary Pickford or who it, who it is, but just, you know, the, those, uh, the, the pure woman who can't see or who can't hear or any of these kind of things. And it's just like how it, it, uh, her being disabled kind of makes her more of a pure person in the world. And it's just bizarre how, things kind of break into these tropes over the years and you just see these patterns reemerge again and again. I mean, even to the point of still seeing some of these things in today's cinema going from what you said, the 1897 film about the fake beggar 
And then trading places, uh, something about Mary. I thought, of course, of the beginning of Payback with uh, Mel Gibson, who is threatening a guy because he knows he's a fake beggar, and the guy gets his comeuppance. And it's just like, wow, the, these things stay with us for so many years. You know, to pivot into the idea of the roles that disabilities have played, I'm 34, so I kind of grew up in the era of it was much less about the person with the disability is being like the the villain or and, and there are many examples of that you know in my generation but for the most part what i was exposed to was was people with disabilities being used as props or being used as inspirational porn i don't think black cars are good i like i like blue cars or green cars like rick who's rick he's a bus driver you met him at the funeral i don't remember have you been waiting long? Mm, two hours. Why didn't you wait inside? Because you couldn't see me in there. I have your address. Honestly, Beth, you know, you just make things harder on yourself. Buckle up for safety. You know, to sort of make people feel better about, you know, oh, I'm able-bodied, but I can feel for this person that has a disability. And so much of the things that I've been exposed to, and, and, it, and it's still a, a factor today, uh, is the idea of sort of like, you know, the pat on the head, like, yeah, this this person with a disability has a, a role in this film or this piece of media or something, but um, their role doesn't go any further than what it is. You know, one of the things the film spoke about was the two sort of roles that a, a person with a disability portrays, which is like either being evil or being incredibly noble. But the other one that sort of, uh, and I think they may not have touched upon it because it's definitely a slippery slope or you could make a whole documentary just on this alone. But the idea of, of inspirational porn and, and again, being uh, people with disability being used as, as props. And I will say this because I know it kind of comes off as very negative. There, there have been many roles that people with disabilities have played that are really, really intriguing and, and aren't that. So I want to sort of asterisk that and say that I understand that. But the majority of them, even today, are still very much just like, wow, that person did really well. That's great. You know, and the, the, the sort of quote unquote normal actor, so to speak, they don't get that response. They get the like, wow, the role that you played was it was deep. It was really you really had to pull from that. You know, you really had to kind of go really deep. It's funny to me that the, the, the people who actually have disabilities that play these roles, it's kind of like, wow, that's great that you gave them a chance. That's something in 2017 that we're still battling with. I mean, it's really sad when that uh, TV show Speechless, which is actually a really good portrayal of, of, of somebody who has a disability, where when I first heard that they announced this show on ABC, I was like, all right, well, they're going to get somebody without a disability to play the main role or that role is going to be very buried. But luckily it isn't. That's really, really refreshing to see somebody who actually has a disability play somebody who has a disability. I got it, mister. I got it. You're just like old Albion Packalot's hired man. Tom Cullen knows what that is. M-O-O-N. That spells deaf and dumb. 
people with disabilities, how I've been exposed to them has always sort of been these sort of like, you know, full house or saved by the bell. Like in the end, like the person with the disability, it's like, oh, they did it. That's great. Like, oh, and then we never have to see them again. That's unfortunate. What I was really sort of hoping that this, and I don't mean to jump everywhere, but I was, what I was really hoping this film would do. And again, this could be another film is talk about not only actors or actresses that have disabilities that are in that community, but also directors, producers, uh, you know, the indie film world. Are there people with disabilities that are making inroads? Um, and, and again, with this sort of film, I don't think they that wasn't their focus or they didn't have the time to do that. But that's also something else that they could make a, a totally different film on as well. It seemed like they broached it so briefly, and I, I'm guessing that one of the reasons it was broached so briefly is that there were so few examples to point to. There's just a, not a lot to talk about. And in the end, you know, that's a super problematic. You're never really going to see the, you know, the demonstration on the screen if behind the scenes the right people are not pushing the buttons and making the calls and green lighting scripts or what have you. You got have to have those behind the scenes players making making those decisions. And the nominees are Tyler Winston for his portrayal of a deaf man fighting injustice in Hear the Light. So unless anyone has anything else to say, I think that concludes our meeting. Yeah. <laughs> today. Now, I may not be able to hear with these, but you people, you can't hear with this. Uh, Todd Langenforce's portrayal of a handicapable man fighting corruption in Rolling Tall. Now, I'm not against helping the handicapped. It's just that I'm tired of lining up for a restaurant on a slant. Okay. So, we'll take down all the wheelchair accessible ramps and replace them with large bumps. Uh, 
of America, then count me out. I'm not the one that's handicapped. You're the ones that are handicapped. In here. I'm very curious what you guys think about the, it could be the elephant in the room, I'm not sure, the whole idea of people playing disabilities that don't have disabilities versus people playing disabilities that do have disabilities. I mean, I can see both sides of the issue. Okay, is it people playing themselves or is it or is it more of an acting challenge, quote unquote, to have Daniel Day Lewis playing Christy Brown, or is it better to find an actor who has the same thing that Christy Brown had? I mean, what what is your guys' opinion as far as that goes? I mean, it's, it kind of goes back to the whole thing of like whitewashing to me. Like, uh, do, do you find an Asian actress to be in Ghost in the Shell, or do you give it to Scarlett Johansson? I personally don't have like a hard and fast rule that an able-bodied person should never be able to be able to play a disabled a person with a disability. That said, the thing that that is pointed out perhaps not very elegantly in Tropic at Thunder with Simple Jack, this idea of, I don't know, to me, it feels like some actors really hamming it up, taking these roles for, I don't know, the wrong reasons. I, I might not be fair by saying the wrong reasons, but that idea of, hey, this is a super challenging role for me to play somebody who has a disability that I don't have. And that ups the ante on the applause that might come for the performance Um it's definitely something I noticed. I remember the first time I, it was really striking to me was, you know, it was well before Tropic Thunder about, you know, probably a decade before the kids in the hall did a skit about it where there was a, a fake Academy Award and every actor that was up for best actor that year had played somebody with a disability and they were not making fun of the people with the disabilities. They were making fun of the Hollywood trope, you know, ever since then it's been, I'm a huge kids in the hall fan. So ever since then, it's always been front and center when I see that. I almost, I can't separate it. So that's kind of my gut reaction. I don't feel like you, you, you can make a rule or that it could never work, but I think Hollywood would do well to look for a lot more opportunities to place the people who are experiencing that disability and putting them in those spots way more frequently than it happens. I guess that's the way I would take it. To piggyback what you're kind of saying, Steve, I, th- I think my stance is a little bit more of a hard stance on that. Where, whereas, and this is a very ex- extreme sort of analogy, but sort of stick with me here. And this would never happen, but if we had a guy, a cis male, play the role of Alfred of The Handmaid's Tale, which of course would never happen, right? But but let's say we live in a world that that could be the case. It would be so disingenuous. It would be so bizarre. And weird. There are so many things about that TV series and the way that that lead role is played because she identifies as a woman, because she's had those experiences. Uh, Her facial expressions just in the way that she looks at men. You can't tell me. And I know this for a fact because I know many of them that are people with disabilities that that are actors, actresses that just want that chance want that chance to take that role. And the fact that there are some movie studios out there or, you know, TV shows out there that won't even 
acknowledge people with disabilities, even if the role doesn't require a disability. It's just that is, you know, there was one thing in the in the, in the documentary that they talked about. You know, I'm reading this role, and uh, I didn't even think of the person having a disability. I just they had a name, and that was it. They were an able-bodied person. And that's really unfortunate. You know, that's that's sort of already typecasting, you know, like when you read this role, you may think of them as, you know, white or black or LGBTQ or straight. And without even having any sort of description, most of the time you probably think of them as a white, cis, male or female who's straight. And that's really sort of unfortunate. And I think that ultimately my stance on able-bodied people playing the role of somebody with a disability is completely disingenuous if because, and I know this, that there are plenty of people with disabilities that can play that role not only because they have a disability, but they can do it extremely, extremely well. There are tens, hundreds of thousands of actors and actresses with disabilities that are waiting to fill those roles. There's, for some reason, there's still sort of this hesitation to really sort of put somebody in that role that has a disability. That happened 50 years ago. That happens today. That's why when I brought up Speechless, for the disability community, for my friends, it was a huge, not only was it a huge surprise that that show exists, and it's being renewed for a second season. It was a huge surprise that somebody with a disability actually is the lead role. I mean, look at Breaking Bad. Like, you know, the gentleman that played that role, I mean, he would go to basically auditions and not tell anybody that he has a disability. That's really, really, really sort of, to me, disarming. That I mean, that doesn't surprise me when I heard that in the documentary but it's a very, very strong realization that for me, you know, when I play music or when I go for job interviews, like I don't tell people that I have a disability, that shouldn't matter. But for some people that still does. And that's a reality that we have to face. It's funny that you brought up a man playing a woman in the Handmaid's Tale, because going back to like Elizabethan times when it's all men in the the cast of actors, you know, men played every single role. It was that way for so long, and it seems like it was it's the way that it is now, where white people are playing everything for so long now, and it's just like going back to the slanted screen, you know, Catherine Hepburn playing an Asian woman, or um, oh god, that horrible Mickey uh, Rooney Japanese role that he played in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And it's like, okay, we've moved past that a little bit, but then we kind of take a step backwards every now and then when it comes to things like, you know, I mentioned uh, you actually, you mentioned cisgender people playing trans roles. And as we're recording this, there's some controversy going on about uh, Elle Fanning playing a trans character. And I know uh, years ago, who's a Felicity Huffman played a trans character, and she got a lot of kudos for doing that. But then a lot of people are like, well, wait a second, there's there's trans actresses out there. Uh, why isn't this happening? And it's just, it keeps going. It's like, it, it's so rare 
that a trans person gets cast in a trans role. And it's just like, for fuck's sakes, guys, it's yes, there's a community of actors out there that you can choose from. It's just, what is it? And then people will start using bullshit answers about like, oh, well, you know, hey, Ghost in the Shell, we, we cast Scarlett Johansson in there because she's a big star. And there's no way you could open this movie with a Japanese actress in there. And it's like, well, and, I, and, and not to interrupt you, but can I just say, I think that movie would have been better served with somebody who was Japanese as, as somebody that is part Japanese. It was almost like offensive to myself and especially my mother. You know, it's like there are, you know, it's, it's I just I, there are plenty of Japanese Americans who could play that role and play it well. And I would almost, and, and, and I will, I'm a huge fan of the anime and I am a anime nerd. Um, and this had, you know, little to do with the anime and more to do, to do with the fact that it's a Japanese role. I mean, it's set in Japan. She has a Japanese name. Like, I, I'm sorry, but there are plenty of Japanese American women. There are plenty of Japanese women who could play that role and play it extremely well. It's just, it's, it's very unfortunate to me that it's, it's just very sad that, um, this, you know, a, a, a movie like ghost in the shell, which I originally liked the anime, I refuse to see it and not out of sort of this like quote unquote, politically correct culture or snowflake culture. It was more like, no, like there are plenty of Japanese American women who could have played that role and played it really well. I mean, the majority of America doesn't know what Ghost in the Shell is. And I don't think a Scarlett Johansson would have made people think that Ghost in the Shell is the most amazing sci-fi film in the world. It just, it would it wasn't going to happen. That's a huge lost opportunity, which I think ultimately stunts future movies that have Asian American women or Japanese American women or Japanese women, and such as I know, for example, the film Akira, which has uh, been a film that has been tried to um, be produced for the last 25 years or something. I, I don't think that'll ever happen, not just because of the special effects, but because of I think that at this point, Ghost in the Shell, because it failed, we'll never see Akira actually exist uh, in American cinema, which is really unfortunate because if Ghost in the I, I guarantee you, if Ghost in the Shell was played by a Japanese American woman who could also act, I'm not saying just throw somebody else in there, but I guarantee you that it would have been more genuine and people would have wanted to see that more. Yes, there were issues with the story, from what I understand, but I, I think that really it would have done better. And I don't. I think this stunts, you know, the Asian American community. Well, yeah, Rinko Kikuchi so should have played that role to me the girl who's it was in pacific rim it's like come on she was such a natural she's a great action heroine doesn't make any sense but the the thing is the thing that people and i'm sorry i'm getting on my soapbox there's a moment in cinemability that i think speaks to so much stuff it almost doesn't fit in the movie because it's not necessarily about a disability but it is about empathy and that is the moment when benito martinez is talking about how he would see people on television who were playing mexicans or were playing native americans and how they would just be white people 
with makeup on their face. And then he sees a movie where the guy looks like him, looks like his dad, looks like him. He's got the same kind of haircut. He's got the same kind of accent. And finally, he's able to identify with this guy up on screen. And that's the thing that I think just the the whole, like, people like me, you know, people, cisgendered white men can't fucking understand is that it is so important to be able to see a representative of yourself on the screen. I mean, forget about uh the the uh, who is the best actress to be in ghost in the shell just have the common sense or have the empathy to say wouldn't it be great if i'm a little asian girl to look up at this big screen and see myself represented up there why does it always have to be the white person why is it the white able-bodied person who's playing you know this person with disabilities why is it uh you know mark singer playing the deaf the blind guy and if you could see what i hear why is it you know like just so many characters being played by people who aren't them and i know there that's where that rub of as far as acting goes you know like oh hey it's a great challenge and and again not to interrupt you and not to like hinder on this point but I would totally buy into the idea that, oh, we need able-bodied people or white cis males to play this role or this role because only three people uh, in the world who have disabilities are actors or actresses. Like I, I would buy into that more, but that's not true. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people of color, pe- people with disabilities that are vying to play roles that are – that are great. It's sort of like, you know, I grew up in the world of like punk and these underground bands. It's like all of these bands are like great. And if somebody was just to give them one iota of a chance, like they would be the biggest band in the world, you know? And I I know that is the case for people with disabilities and, and, and being in media and being in TV and being in movies. This isn't a case of, Oh well, you know, there's just not very good people, uh, actors and actresses that have disabilities that are. Pl- no, we're just not seeking them out. They exist. They 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 exist. They they do all different kinds of genres. It's just we're afraid to seek them out, and that's that's a reality that I think that you know Hollywood and even the indie movie community has to admit still, um, and they're afraid to admit that because that sort of then kind of undermines the quote unquote diversity that they've been really pushing towards, you know? So I, again, I, I know that's sort of just underscoring your point, but it has to be said, you know? So the one thing I would throw in there is I think one of the things that needs to change too most in my mind is seeing people with disabilities, like incorporated into stories where, they're not primarily into the story because they have a disability. It can come up, you can see it reflected, but they're primarily human who are dealing with something and they're, they're part of an overarching story. I think, you know, you brought up Sean Breaking Bad. I think it's RJ Midday. I mean, his disability came into play a few times, but that was not the main reason he was cast and it was not the main reason he was in the story. He was in the story to play the son of that particular character. And I just think too often 
the disability becomes the forefront personality um, item of whatever role there is. Life is a tapestry. And as I'm walking around in normal everyday life, I see a lot of different people. I see a lot of people who look exactly like me. And I see a lot of people who look completely different than me. And I wish that there was that modicum of reality that got represented in the media where I could see that representation. I mean, 50 years ago, you didn't see black people on television very often. It was the whole, like, there's the asterisk as far as, well, there is this one character over here. There was this one show over there. And it's like, please show me more things. It's okay. I can, I can accept that there are people out there in the world that aren't exactly me. I want to see those people and those people have stories to be told. Those people have things to do in the freaking background of a show. You know, it doesn't have to be, like you said, it doesn't have to be this show is all about this character. You could just have them there. This show me some sort of reality when it comes to, Hey, this guy, he walks with a limp. Okay. BFD. He walks with a limp. There's a guy you know, that that happens. Just show that stuff to us. Don't make everyone, you know, I think Steve, you called it like the Zac Efron syndrome where everybody has to look perfect in front of the camera at all times. Give me the interesting looking people. Give me the interesting people. That That's a really good point to, to sort of just have them there. I also think, and, and this was a, something that I really noticed, and I think they brought it up a little bit in, in, in the film, um, but that, uh, you know, when there was people with disabilities on the screen, and I think it was that TV show Ironside that they were talking about, it, it, it always sort of happened wherever he had to go into a place, uh, or at least when they showed it on uh, in that documentary, that there was like a ramp or something that he had where he could you know, do what he had to do. And that's super unrealistic as well, right? You know, it's it's not just having a disability and then like everything is accessible. That's not the, the case. You know, I think the, the, it's it's sad to say, but also I think it's it's funny that Scary Movie 2, they also showed a, a piece from Scary Movie 2 um, when, um, uh, and I forget the comedian's name um, right now, but he was, he was in a wheelchair and he's like, I'm going to go upstairs and look for the bad guy or the, the scary monster or whatever. And uh, you didn't know. But then the next uh, like shot is him in a wheelchair trying to crawl up the steps and having the worst time doing that. And he couldn't do it. And that's a more realistic portrayal of, you know, not only somebody with a disability, that's to me, that's like 80 percent of the battle. But then. The, the world is not built for people with this. It's just not built for people with disabilities. So to have that next scene, him sort of trying to crawl up the stairs, but not even doing it because he just can't uh, is it's funny, but it's also that's reality. Right. And um, that's another sort of side to tackle where it isn't just about the actor or actress playing that role. It's about, well, the world around you, like, you know, just because, you are playing this role. Why is everything suddenly accessible because you're playing this role, you know, like, and, and maybe that's kind of difficult for movies and TV shows to put in, uh, in inaccessible stairs here and there, but it also paints a picture of 
not being very realistic. And that's sort of unfortunate. What does it say about Hollywood when Scary Movie 2 is giving the most realistic portrayal? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At the end of the day, I think cinemability is a success. And I would say a resounding success, especially as the three of us are sitting here talking about this movie. I think that it has done exactly what it needed to and should have done, which was to start conversations. Now, this has been a fantastic conversation. I know that we could probably go on for hours, but this isn't going to be one of those kind of shows. So we're going to cut it a little short. We're going to take a break, and we're going to play an interview with the director of Cinemability, Ms. Jenny Gold. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello, I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast podcast available anywhere even holland find the after movie diner podcast on blog talk radio itunes stitcher and aftermoviediner.com now where's that bottle it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? Before I even roll into that, I did have a couple questions as far as um, just nomenclature, words, terms, those kind of things. So when I was in college, it was definitely not the preferred term to call someone disabled. It was more differently abled or handicapable. What's your preferred term? You know, I kind of always joke about this because you know everybody gets so politically correct and stuff. When I was growing up, I didn't mind handicapped because I realized that horses, when they were handicapped, they put more weight on the best horse. So I kind of figured it meant I had more 
getting to overcome because I was the best horse, you know, kind of a thing. But I'm fine with whatever, personally. There's some archaic terms like confined to a wheelchair or wheelchair bound that are kind of, you know, unrealistic. And and it's normal. I mean, people use it all the time. And they don't, you know, get how that's not really accurate with somebody who uses a wheelchair. But that's a sticky thing. Everyone you ask is going to say something different, you know. You know, the disabled parking spots are where I pull up. I'm okay with that, too. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I want to try to use uh, terminology that's not going to, you know, set your hair on fire or anything. So, (laughs) nor do I want to use something where it's just like, yeah, we don't use that term anymore. Yeah, I'm pretty easy. Um, The main thing that will always get you in a safe zone is if you use the person first. So, so so-and-so is a person who has autism, a person who has a disability. Uh, a person who uses a wheelchair, I think you're pretty safe if you do that. I'm curious, when it comes to being in a wheelchair, does that give people just this kind of pass where they can say, oh, well, why are you in a wheelchair? And just have this almost inappropriate conversation starter with you? I suppose. You know, each person is different. A friend of mine uses crutches and constantly is putting on Facebook uh, encounters he has with people who are very bold and come up to him. He write, he's a writer, so he writes some very funny letters. Uh, but yeah, to a certain extent, people will go, hey, but, you know, it's just fine. Well, I'm going to be that person. I'm going to ask you, at what age was it necessary for you to use a wheelchair? You know, I uh, pretty much started using a wheelchair around second grade. I have muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy, to be exact. Could walk, but not a normal gait. When I was little, it was kind of a back and forth. But they noticed something was different than my older sisters. When I was about six months, I wasn't crawling like they had. So they finally, you know, started looking into seeing what was wrong. And then I think finally found out after uh, got invited to the Bethesda, Maryland Hospital. And then did some testing and determined it was spinal muscular atrophy or Vernick Hoffman's. Uh, which was named after two doctors. But there are many different kinds of SMA and many different kinds of MD. But in my particular kind, I started pretty much using a wheelchair around second grade. What got you interested in being in the entertainment industry? You know, I guess I'm just a storyteller. I enjoy early on as a kid, I started with photography and then little video films or eight millimeter films. High school, I uh, transferred to a high school that had uh, radio television department and then got immersed in switchers and cameras and the whole nine yards and fell in love with that. And it just sort of helped fuel my creativity. But I think early on, even when I was even younger, it's probably from my in front of the camera work during the Jerry Lewis muscular dystrophy telephones that I saw what was going on behind the scenes and how they were putting things together and and got interested even back then. You're seeing the behind the scenes and actually say, this is something that I can do or something I want to do? Yeah, you know, being able to tell stories and entertain an audience. People like to say what movies are, have inspired them growing up, and I have to pick two. I can't pick one. Um, well, you know, Jaws, of course, because, you know, I was young, probably too young to see it, but the way the audience reacted to that film and the other one was uh, Rocky, one and two. 
The second one, I remember going to a theater that was sold out. And I think people were standing, actually. When Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed both fell, and you're rooting for them to get up, the people in the audience were standing and screaming and yelling and going nuts. And I think that made a huge impact on me wanting to be able to manipulate an audience and have them entertained in such a way that they're in the palm of your hands, really. I don't know how old you are, but I also saw Rocky II in the theater uh, when I was a kid. And I remember people chanting, Rocky, Rocky, the whole end of that fight. Oh, my God, that was amazing. It was. And I don't know that we've had. I don't think people remember. Or there's been a lot of movies that have had that kind of a visceral experience in the theaters to, to that extent. Um, and that was great. I mean, it was fantastic. You know, there may be other ones you could probably point to, but, but that one stands out. And when people say, you know, what movies we do have on a desert island, I have to consider one and two. Rocky is one. I, I can't have one without number two. And I know one is the Oscar winner and doesn't have exactly the happy ending. And it's technically better in that regard. And I'm a sucker for a him to win in the end. So I have to have one and two. So I know you went to the University of Central Florida and got two BA degrees, one in motion picture production and one in radio television broadcasting. How did you go about actually getting into the industry once you had the diploma in hand? I had entered a lot of student film festivals. One was uh, I won Student Emmy, which helped, and that brought me out to California to receive that. It was a regional Student Emmy, but it got me introduced to the Television Academy. It had other shorts that did really well at various film festivals, and those led to my first feature, which I did in Florida with um, professionals I had met in Orlando um, who were working there, and we put together a great team, and I was able to get some 35-millimeter film stock, and said, so we're doing it no matter what. Whatever money we have, we're going to make this film, and we wrote, uh, my partner and I wrote an action film shot with explosions and fire stunts and semi-trucks and ultralights for what was amazing, $107,000 back then. Variety, Variety wrote a review when I did a film festival out here and said that gold can get bang for her buck on a B-actioner, which I didn't really appreciate the B-actioner, but that's really what it was. In hindsight, it was, a, it was a pretty good review. But that film, which was about because of the success of the short films, uh, that first feature film got me into the Director's Guild, uh, which was a long-time um, goal, and also brought me to Los Angeles because we came out here to finish posting it and then met more people and then got hired on a job and eventually moved out here. The action film, was that uh, Ready, Willing, and Able? It was, which is available on Vimeo. How did the idea of cinemability come about? There was a reporter at LA Times Valley Edition who did an article about me. This is, you know, one of those community pieces about a director who uses a wheelchair. Also in the business, uh, called me and said, hey, I want to come over and talk to you. So they said, sure. You know, they came over to our house and they said, we want to do a documentary about you. And I'm like, why? Because there was an article? I said, no, I haven't done anything. That would be boring. I said, if you want to do it on disability, and then right then I came up with the idea. I was like, yeah, why don't you do them the history of disability movies? I pitched it to them. And I said, you know, come to think of it, I know everybody. You could talk to it. It'd be like paint by numbers. 
for you? And they said, well, it sounds like a lot of work. Uh, we think we'll pass. And I said, well, I might, just so you know, I might do it one day. And they said, fine. And I kind of put it in the back burner. I put it in the back of my filing cabinet and didn't think of it much, mainly because sometimes you don't want to do, when you have a disability, you don't want to, you know, be pigeonholed if that's all you talk about or that's all you do, ironically. So I, you know, was trying to just do mainstream stuff. And I had a friend who was a publicist come over to my office, uh, which was at Universal at the time. And the idea was he would look at all my projects and recommend, you know, what, what he thought was the most hot thing that I should focus on. And he found this in the back file. I said, what is this? And I said, well, it's a documentary. I really don't, you know, do documentaries. I'm more of a narrative filmmaker. And he goes, yeah, but who will tell the story if not you? And he was persistent. And the one thing I'm good at is taking advice that's good when I hear it. So then I started talking about it and moving it forward. And, and those friends in the beginning were right. It was hard. It took 10 years to do. But uh, once the ball started rolling, it was like a snowball. It kept getting bigger and bigger. We're contemplating doing a little, maybe a half-hour spinoff with just commercials because there's stuff to talk about in that area as well. But, yeah, we bit off quite a bit. Um, I think the first film is Thomas Edison's The Fake Beggar, 1819. Eight, no, 1897? Yeah, I'll have to look it up. <laughs> it's 1800, late 1800s, I believe. How did you go about shaping the project? I mean, you talked about how you know people in the industry. I mean, obviously, the interviews are part of it. The footage, the, the examples are another part of it. But how do you decide what you're going to use and what you're not going to use? The first cut was like four hours long. And we put up three by five cards up on a whole wall and would go, how does this fit? Where does this go? And pull things off and rearrange. And we have a lot of, you know, really good interviews and things that are on the cutting room floor that would be, you know, bonus material. A lot of times documentaries sort of go their own way and you kind of hold on and follow along. And this one, you know, had part of that. We would, we knew who we wanted to interview and what we thought they would talk about. And then sometimes they would take us down a different path or, or go right to what we wanted and be fantastic. Well, everybody was really great and really open and we got exactly what we wanted. And it was just a matter of pulling out the gems. And I will say there's some stuff on the cutting room floor that I still love, you know, and, and we even, you know, often talk about cutting it down shorter even now because, you know, films are never finished. They're abandoned. I'm tempted to break it back open right now and add some current stuff and, change something. I'm trying to hold myself back. There's two hats, you know, that you wear. The director wants to go back in and start working on it again. And producer's like, no, we'll see which one wins out. When you're saying we, I know that you worked with Sam Reed on this project. Can you tell me, how did you guys meet? He answered an ad. I had an office at Universal for 12 years. And it's funny, I interned at Universal Florida. When I came to Los Angeles, we posted Ready, Will, and Able at Universal, and we met people, and we continued to do work there. And eventually, we thought, hey, you know, we should open up Gold Pictures at Universal rather than, you know, meeting at Starbucks like everybody else. You know, you're always trying to position yourself and your company. And so we did, and we were there for 12 years. Um, and occasionally, I would put ads out for interns. And I would try an intern for six months, 
or so, three to six months, whatever. And then if, uh, you know, they were good, we would, you know, hire them. And we had gone through other, I feel really good about the interns that we had because most of them have remained really good friends. I've seen them going on to other stuff and point them in the right direction. And now they're married and having kids. And it's just, it's really awesome. It's just our extended gold pitchers family. But he was one of the ones that answered an ad. It was him and another guy. And they both were on different days and we weren't sure we were going to keep. And then uh, Sam really ended up being the shining star. And uh, we kept him on as an intern and then hired him. And then uh, he's been with us, I think, like seven years continuing to get higher and higher in the company. Till now, he's like our creative director and head of uh, so much, you know, co-writer with me on a number of projects, associate producer, producer on stuff. It's been incredible. It's been a great partnership. It's wonderful when you can meet people like that and, you know, move forward. When it comes to CinemaBility, how did you go about funding the project? We self, my husband and I self-funded it. And we had a couple investors also that came in. Our DP came in uh, with his camera and then another gentleman from Atlanta that we met once we were kind of into the film. So we, we had little, and then an angel along the way, you know, occasionally here and there. You have so many amazing interview subjects in the film. I'm curious, who was your short list when you started making your list of who I would love to have on screen for this project? Oh, well, there's some that actually I had met, you know, talked to, was wanted to be in it, and we never could work it out. Um, like uh, Kevin Spacey. Um, I had met him at the DJ Awards. We had a great conversation. And then scheduling-wise, it got to the point where I sort of had to finish the film, and I couldn't just keep waiting around. Um, so, yeah, there, everybody that we, we got was really incredible and um, had a lot to add, and it wasn't just superficial. They really knew what they were talking about, which you never know. I mean, you're going after someone because they worked on a project that had something to do with something that we thought was what we wanted to get down. And then, and then you get the interview, and you have to be ready on a, to turn on a dime because you don't know when they may be available. So that was a real trick. We had to have the crew available at a moment's notice it was so bittersweet seeing gary marshall and ken howard um mm-hmm. you know having just lost them recently uh for you and me too we lost other people too that's the problem doing a film of 10 years gary you know just recently we were like do we redo the credits again yeah i mean like our our in memoriam is going to be so long ken was a huge loss for us because um a, he was a fantastic guy uh, Ken Howard, as well as um, Tom Sherrick and Rick Finkelstein. Uh, Rick was, you know, at Universal, and, and uh, you know, Tom Sherrick, we were getting ready to do the run for the Academy Award, and these were our titans that were helping us. We lost Ken, uh, Tom Sherrick, and during the campaign, it was, it was uh, horrific. You know, because he was a fantastic guy and he was important to the film and he understood. And I think he could have really helped point us in the right direction. So we were kind of like based in the woods there for a while. All of our Titans, um, unfortunately, had uh, gone on to their rewards in heaven. So we were alone. 
I like that you don't shy away from any subject either. I mean, even to the point of, um, you know, talking about how so many actors will portray uh, disabled people almost as like this Oscar bid. And it becomes this um, thing that you do in your career if you almost want to be guaranteed an Oscar nod. I was really glad that you kind of mm-hmm. called that out. Actually, that's scary for being honest. That's what I mean. These actors and producers and creative producers and industry uh, leaders were very open. At first, it was interesting. When we first sit down, some of them were a little nervous. And I was trying to get them on something, you know, have them say the wrong word or whatever. And once they understood that I was just a filmmaker who loved film and loved Hollywood, they loosened up and relaxed. And then gave us great stuff. Gary said that, and he was quite open about it. You know, you do the word, and you, you get the Oscar, you know. That does happen. I mean, there are even some since uh, since we, I, I almost said finished the film, but I think we finished it. The Theory of Everything, Eddie Redman won for that. So there's been others. You know, it continues. And also, when we talk about Million Dollar Baby, a film, you know, and that's the thing. When I started, I thought my thesis was that portrayals had become more realistic and understanding of what uh, the situations really are. There's none of these stereotypes anymore over the years. But then Million Dollar Baby happened. And then just this last year, Me Before You, which is a film that was booked in a film that was widely accepted as a love story. But it's about a guy who is rich, good looking, has a beautiful girlfriend that because he is in a wheelchair, he would rather die. So what that says to the cheerleader who breaks her neck on the pyramid of the football game or the football player who breaks his neck during the game um, is that when they're in recovery, uh, my life is over. That's because that's what we're fed. That's what we know. You know, and it says uh, there's a, a woman in the film, and if you remember, but Teal Shear is her name. She's an actress. And she said, I didn't know my life would be great because I didn't see it in the film. Well, now she's married and has a child and she's a, a mother who uses a wheelchair and that she's continuing her life and is very happy as well as being an actress and <laughs> career mom. So, yeah, we've talked a lot on this show about the importance of seeing people who are like you on screen, just with the recent controversy over the whitewashing of uh, ghost in the shell and some other roles, Dr. Strange and just, you know, people, not seeing their own representations on the big screen. And how was that for you when you were growing up and, and either seeing or not seeing people like you in film? You know, Jerry Fox says it the best. It's like you want to root for your team. You want to see someone in your same jersey. And I'm sure for me it was the same. One of the movies that, uh, and I'm probably dating myself again, but I'm much younger than this, but one of the movies that made a real lot of light growing up was the Friday the 13th where there's a bad culture and he's like all the other kids they're making out and having fun and he gets killed by Freddy or who's Friday the 13th? Yeah, Jason for Friday the 13th. Jason. Yeah. Jason, yeah. So he gets killed with an axe to the head and the wheelchair rolls down a flight of stairs. I love that because it wasn't the guy killed him. He was a teenager just like everybody else. And it wasn't really an actor, probably, who had that disability, necessarily, but at least it was being seen. As Gary Marshall says, you know, you, you want to get someone with that same 
specifically if they're not a, uh, if you can't find an actor uh, for that role, you have to still show the character at the very least. Because so I started something called the Gold Test. Um, it asks whether a work of fiction prominently features a disabled character whose story is not about their disability and whose character is not solely defined by their disability. And when you put the gold test to any film, pick, you know, pick a film, pick any film, pick Jurassic Park, or Jurassic World that was recently out, they had a scene which was in kind of like a theme park. And if you go to Disney World or Disneyland or Universal, you'll see maybe somebody in a wheelchair, right? Or maybe somebody signing somebody with a cane, something, right? But in Jurassic World, nobody. So I tease them fight for a right to be killed by, you know, pterodactyls. Because even Jimmy Buffett was in a cameo in that film, you know, which is cool. But, you know, it's like, really? You wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't it be fun to see one, you know, other person? I just because Peter Fairley says, uh, I'm not sure if he said it in our film or he just said it to me, but it, it's something's missing. Because it's not like real life. Because when you go to the movies or you go shopping to the shopping center, you will see somebody, whether it's a CI dog or, you know, you know, you're likely to see someone who has a disability somewhere. Because it's the largest minority group. It's one-fifth of the population, right? So chances are you may not have anybody in your own family or your circle of friends. But, you know, if you start paying attention... You'll you'll notice other people. I have to thank you because I never really thought about the Fairley brothers and the characters that they represent on screen until I saw Cinemability. And just to think of, oh yeah, there was a character with crutches, or there was a developmentally delayed person, there were conjoined twins, and just to think of all of those films and just how many differently abled people there are in their movies. Well, not only that. They, they don't even have someone just as a secretary, just in the background, or just crossing. And the thing is, a lot of people at first were like, oh, the Fairley Brothers, they're making fun of them. But the truth is, is that the Fairley Brothers and their friend, Danny Murphy, uh, were teenagers and they went diving off of a pier. And Danny actually stopped one of the brothers and said, I want to go first. Go first and broke his neck. Danny became a good friend of ours. And was really one of the main reasons Cinebility started because when I started thinking about doing it, he said, well, why don't you talk to my buddies, the Fairley Brothers? And so the Fairley Brothers gave me some of their clips and I was like, when's it going to come out? And then I had pressure. And so then I had to do the film. It was, it was uh, the catalyst. And then it was huge. He became an actor and, and the Fairley Brothers put him in every one of their films. Um, and it was it was a great uh, thing, and, and unfortunately, he's another one that we lost over in uh, not because of his disability, um, because of his paralysis, but ironically, he um, got cancer. It was the last that we were making the film. But yeah, it's funny. you don't think about it when you get married because they take so much longer than the feature that you're going to have friends. So now, when we watch it, it's like bittersweet because we think. Certain friends that are getting laughs that I know they would love. You know, they're on the screen and the audience is, is loving them. Um, and I know that they're looking down and enjoying it from heaven. But it is uh, bittersweet, like you said. But it, back to your question about actors who really are disabled, yes. The dilemma in that is that 
if you're not even an extra or in a commercial, that's how actors get started and they work their way up and they get noticed. And But if people with disabilities aren't allowed in those roles, the only that's written for a person with a disability, then the roles are far and few between. Not able to just play the lawyer or the doctor that often. Um, so when that happens, they can't get training. They can't get experience. So when the producer says, oh, there's no one of any experience, that's because there's been a catch-22 that we need to work around. For any, It's, it's no different than any other uh, minority group. The, you know, they have the same thing. The only difference is that disability remains the minority of the minorities, even though it's the largest part of the population, even though it's annual, the community will do that. <laughs> Maybe they would change some of the programming. But Speechless just got renewed for a second season, so maybe maybe they're noticing a little bit. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, too, is over your time that you've been working in the industry, have you noticed an improved improvement in the situation, or is it just been kind of status quo? There are glimpses every now and then. And certain people who get it, but if you look at Oscar So White, when all the articles came out in all the trade magazines and even the Academy uh, had statements, they would mention, yes, we need to do more about diversity. And they would mention women and people of color and the LGBTQ. And guess what? One group they never mentioned. Never. Ever. New York City was going to do a incentive for, um, films or TV shows that hired minorities and they listed everybody except for one group. How can you be inclusive if you're excluding the largest minority group? One which also covers every other group because if you're disabled, you might also be black. You might also be Asian. You know, every other group is included. The only difference is often if you're, you have a disability, you might be the only one in your family. So growing up, like myself, my older both sisters are able-bodied. So I was the only one in my family who also had a disability. So you tend to, once you grow up, you know, find a tribe, you know, find other people. And for me, it was coming to Los Angeles because there was a bunch of actors and with disabilities, and I happened to meet them. And so then all of a sudden, I'm around other people, you know. In a way, though, growing up just as one of yeah, my parents told me there's no such word as can't. So when the school said I couldn't be a drummer in the school band, I said, why? And, and my parents said, yeah, why? And then I became a drummer in the school band. Yeah. Um, so going in the philosophy of no such word as can't is helpful in the film business as well. I'm sure. I mean, I know that so many people have so many obstacles they have to overcome, and just there's so much luck of the draw. I mean, it's got to be such a struggle to do anything, no matter who you are, no matter what color, what 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 uh, sex, nationality, any of that. It's just like so many things are stacked against you, and that you have made such a career. It's just like wow, that that's amazing. I mean, you already have a, a major strike against you, which is that you're a woman. I mean, so many yeah. people just won't even take women seriously. Well, women directors are what like four percent. It's it's working. You know, it's pretty low. You know, and so that's why I have to create, I, I, I haven't yet been hired 
playing my house, I created my own work because I realized two things out of film school. One, I wasn't going to do the path of my peers because I couldn't really be an intern sweeping up and PAing and all that stuff. So I had to learn to write and, you know, edit stuff. And so I worked my way through writing. So I had been hired in those in that regard. But as a director, I haven't been hired other than hiring myself, which is hopefully going to change. I'm getting closer, though. What has been the reaction to the film that you've gotten so far? We just had a great screening at the Arclight Cinema in Hollywood, uh, which was sponsored by SAG-AFTRA. And we had two guild presidents. We had Gabriela Cateris, the president of SAG-AFTRA, and Paris Barkley, the president of my guild, the DGA, Directors Guild of America. Um, Also on the panel, I was on the panel also, but Kurt Yeager, who's a friend, actor, writer, producer, uh, Cedric Yarborough, who's an actor, comedian, singer, probably best known from being on Speechless that we just talked about, and uh, Academy Award-winning producer, director, actor, James Keats. Usually, in the beginning, if they hear, oh, it's a documentary about disability, they don't want to see it. You know, they go, oh, I'm going to ask them, can we talk to them? Oh, okay. You know, uh, but once they see it, they fall in love with it, because what they don't realize, because, you know, a lot of documentaries, especially if it's a documentary about somebody who's disabled, it's not usually, it's kind of maybe a sad tale or something, but this film is, you know, basically a clip show. It's entertaining. And we put in a lot of uh, laughter. Uh, we get a lot of laughter on, on purpose. That We put in a lot of light moments that are entertaining. And I, uh, Peter Fairley told me once I got more laughs in the documentary than some of his films, um, which was fun. But, you know, I actually counted. I mean, it's like nine really good laughs. And sometimes they get quiet because they're listening. And sometimes they're touched. And so the reaction that we get afterwards is that people see it in two things, three things. One, they want someone else to see it. They want to talk a lot about it. They want to talk to us. They want to know more about it. They want to see some of the films that are mentioned in the film. Maybe a long time. Maybe they never saw it coming home and they, oh, i got to see that now. So it creates um, a desire for them to check out some of the film history that we talk about. But the main thing is that they kind of are uplifted and, you know, they tell me things like, I never thought about that before. And one of the early, well, yeah, one of the early films that I was thinking about when you asked me when that talked about Friday the 13th, the other one was probably Other Side of the Mountain, part one and part two, which by the time I saw it, it was just running on television. And um, when we were doing the show, um, we actually met the woman that played her, and that was a big impact for a lot of, well, I don't know a lot of, but it was a big impact for me. It wasn't played by someone who really had a disability, although the actress did a fantastic job, but the storytelling was authentic because Jill, the true story who was about, was on set and, and made it true to life, and they talked about things like her getting married and things that nobody else you know, was talking about back then that you hadn't seen before. I think that made a huge impact on me personally. What's the future for the film right now? Are you continuing to have uh, festival screenings, just kind of individual screenings? What's the plan for it? We've been doing specialty screenings, and we just did a festival, the Bentonville Walmart Film Festival, which Lewis and Walmart started. We're talking right now to Voodoo. We're also talking to AT&T. Hopefully, uh, going, finding some 
partners who can sponsor maybe even a, a TV airing or something where what we don't want is we don't want to be lost in the sea of VOD that, you know, nobody will ever see it. Um, it deserves to get its you know, day in the sun so that people can enjoy it. You know, every, like I, I just did the screening on the set and, you know, 410 seats sold out and everyone is going nuts afterwards. We want to bring it to the masses, obviously, and we're looking for um, the right partner who can help us do that. As soon as we uh, have a release date, we'll definitely let you know so you can let your listeners Oh, yeah. No, I, I definitely want more people to see this. I'm one of those people who's just like, after I saw this, I want to show it to more people. I want more people to enjoy this movie. Well, we need help. You know, we need like uh, people like you and, and your show and, you know, ground, like grassroots movement to go, hey, this is something that couldn't be ignored. I could have sold it a long time ago. It would have been buried and nobody would have ever heard about it, but I could have, you know, and, and not thought about it anymore. But, you know, when you work 10 years and a lot of your friends are in it, you know, you have to see it through. Well, how are you managing to balance that with the other projects that you're working on these days? Like spinning plates. I just keep spinning them. Hopefully they won't fall down. Because, um, yeah, I did do enough features. I needed it. I needed something. You know, you sometimes it gets frustrating when you know you have a product that is important. And can speak to people, you know, able-bodied. Uh, there was one guy who came, didn't know what he was coming to, but some friend with him, and he was like, oh, my gosh, this is the best thing ever. And I never thought it was very enthusiastic afterwards and had no clue what he was going to see. And so how do we reach those people that would normally see it? So you have to keep working at it, and that's what we're doing. But sometimes you need a, a horror film about killer cockroaches that attack a college kid. It stars Jason Mewes, Casper Van Dien, uh, Grace Van Dien, his real-life daughter, and Robert Mitchell's granddaughter, uh, Barry Boswick, who you'll recall from Spin City, and, of course, Lucky Horror Picture Show. Barry plays our exterminator, who uh, brought amazing comedy to the film. Um, yeah, it was in um, Robert... David Hall is in the film from CSI, played the coroner, uh, who also has a disability, uh, who we didn't make part of the story. He was just the president of the university. Also, um, Tobias Forrest is in the film. He's a wheelchair user. He was in the movie The Session, and uh, he plays as a college kid. You know, So you can put all sorts of people in your film if you think about it. I had to, you know, even when I wrote it, you know, it's not that anyone's malicious. It's that you just don't think about people different than yourself. When I wrote The Coroner, at first I was thinking Robert David Hall, and he said, no, I, I played enough coroners. I'm not doing that. So um, so then I thought, well, it's going to be some other guy. And I thought, wait a minute, Gina Davis wouldn't like that. So I said, I'll make The Coroner a woman, which I did. You know, you just have to think a little harder. You know, and I'm, I'm a woman, and I still thought coroner meant man. You know, it's just these stereotypes that we keep getting fed and then repeating, you know, as someone has to break the chain. And in Hollywood, at least we need to be, if we don't even exist in the background, you know, how are we going to exist as an employee? And that's what I really hope. I mean, I don't want to pin 
the the this entire thing on you and your film, but I really hope that more people see this and it helps to open some more people's eyes. From your mouth of God's ears, and you know, I wasn't kidding. It takes it takes everybody. You know, it takes you to help us to get to other people to get them to you know, and and we're slowly. And I know I feel like I'm the tortoise in the hair with the the tortoise, but we keep on plugging away, and um, hopefully we'll make it to that finishing line and and get it distributed in a meaningful way. Uh, get some partners that can advertise it so that people give it a shot. Because you know, if you're a documentary, you get one strike against you, and you put the word disability with it, forget about it. People run for the hills, including myself. I probably would too, just because of what that normally means. But but this is kind of a fun show. You know, if you if you love film and television and and um, some of these stars that we have in it, you're going to enjoy yourself, and you might learn something. So where's the best place for people to kind of keep up on the film, see where some of the screenings are happening, those kind of things? The best place is cinemability.com. We're going to be actually doing a revamp of it, but there's a place on cinemability.com, a button where you can sign up for a newsletter, and that newsletter tells the latest and greatest you know, updates, what's going on, and then we would have people's emails, and when we get the release date, uh, and what that's going to mean, we can announce it to the world, hopefully. Jenny Gold, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. Thank you. I appreciate it. Right, we are back, and I wanted to thank both of you guys for coming on to this special episode of the Projection Booth. Steve, last time we talked, uh, you were neck deep in the Freep Film Festival, uh, surprisingly keeping your shit together. I, I have to applaud you on that. And I want to thank you for asking me to be part of the festival, especially doing the Q&A with the Sly Stone doc. That was a lot of fun. So what's been keeping you busy lately? Are you already planning the next Freep Film Festival? Yeah, we're already doing a little bit of work. You know, it seems like it's a long way away, but really we've already lost, what, a month and a half or two. So we're, we're only about 10 months away. We're definitely starting to dig in, trying to find films that will make sense for us. And kind of another thing that's kept us busy spinning out of the fest is the movie The Free Press premiered 12th in Claremont, um, drew a really strong response. We got a lot of requests for more screenings. So we've been keeping busy uh, doing some of that. I think we've shown it a couple more times since the festival ended, and we've just booked a few more, and we're looking to book a few more. So um, a, a lot of interest in that film about the uh, Detroit riot slash rebellion in 1967. So that's, that's kind of what I've been up to along with the day job, uh, doing some entertainment editing. And Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. So tell us about your uh, venue accessibility project. Yeah, so I, I run this sort of database called Is This Venue Accessible, uh, which catalogs um, and details uh, music uh, venues around the world, whether they be huge arenas or clubs or even DIY venues. Uh, their sort of level of uh, accessibility uh, we don't normally do that within just numbers. We actually do very detailed sort of 
you know, like there are steps here and this is sometimes this is how many steps there are. And this is, there's a step in front of the menu or it's completely accessible for this particular mobility device, or it's not accessible for a wheel. The bathrooms aren't accessible for wheelchairs or the bathrooms are upstairs. And so that is a, a project uh, that is ongoing that will probably always be ongoing. Uh, and it's super personal to me because uh, I've been involved in music and, and underground music and punk or, or whatever for the last, you know, almost 20 years of my life, uh, not being able to go to certain shows or certain places um, because it's inaccessible. You know, I have this knowledge and this experience and these um, I've been lucky to travel all over the world to go to shows for me personally. And I, it feels like it's my responsibility to use those experiences and that information uh, to help others that want to go to shows that have disabilities or that want to be more involved um, in helping people with disabilities. And so that's an ongoing project that I've been doing, um, you know, along with running a record label and booking shows, you know, being involved in, you know, we're speaking about, you know, movies, but media in general, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily define my sort of music career as being somebody with a disability, but it's an important part of what I do. So um, I'm very proud to be to be doing is this venue accessible and and it's an honor to play shows for people and have a disability and and sort of make people rethink what music is and is it just an able-bodied art form. Well, thanks again, guys, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. I'm spasticus, autisticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, autisticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, autisticus, I whittle when I fiddle, cause my middle is a riddle. I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, autisticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, autisticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, autisticus, I dribble when I nibble and I quibble when I scribble. Hello to you out there in Norman You may not comprehend, not tailor, understand. As I go past your window, give me lucky looks. I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, artisticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, artisticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, artisticus, I'm nobbled on the cobbles, cause I hobble when I wobble. Swim!
must give all proceedings to myself. I'm spasticus. I'm spasticus. I'm spasticus. Artisticus. I'm spasticus. I'm spasticus. I'm spasticus. Artisticus. I'm spasticus. I'm spasticus. I'm spasticus. Artisticus. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.